morning. How's everyone? Better than me, I hope. All right. Let's pray before we come to God's Word. Heavenly Father, we come to you now and we come to your Word. And we ask that you, Holy Spirit, would come and speak to us. I pray that I would fade into the shadows and that all attention and that the spotlight would fall on you, Lord Jesus, as we hear of you, as we learn from you. And so we pray that you would speak to us this morning. Amen. Please keep your Bibles open at Matthew 21. World War One, the war to end all wars. Yeah, right. Since the end of World War One, 1918, there have been roughly 220 wars. Some small, some big, some short, some long, all resulting with some loss of life. We are, lived, we are blessed to live in a country where we experience our sense of peace. But how long will that last? How long will this peace last? Now we may not see it come in the form of war, But if history is anything to go by, peace does not last. Peace does not last. We we talk about true peace. You you watch uh, the UN. You watch uh, you watch uh, international uh, pageant shows, and they talk about true peace, world peace. Is it a myth? Is it a utopian dream that we will never achieve? Well, today we're going to look at what Jesus has to offer to this answer, this search for peace. The Jews in Jesus' day looked for peace. They wanted peace from their Roman uh, rulers. They wanted peace from their oppressors. And they waited that, and they longed for the day that God would send them a king, a Messiah who would come and free them from oppression and bring them peace. And as we look at our passage today, we find ourselves approaching Passover. Passover is a Jewish festival that celebrates the Exodus. The moment, the historic moment where God frees the Israelites from slavery in Egypt and brings them salvation through the blood of a lamb. Let's look at our passage. Verse 1, Jesus is drawing near to Jerusalem. And so he sends two of his disciples to go get a donkey for him. That is a little bit strange. Jesus walked everywhere. You read through the gospel and Jesus walks everywhere. Now, he's coming to Bethphage and it's maybe three k's away from Jerusalem. Now, to us, that sounds like a long distance to walk, maybe for some of you. Um, 
But he's just come from Jerusalem. You go back to uh, chapter 20, and he's just come from Jerusalem. This is about 40 k's walked, and he's walked all this way, all day, and suddenly he's 3 k's away, and he wants a donkey. Google Maps says it's a 40 walk. Now, we're not given specifics here, but it seems like Jesus planned this in advance. Uh, Jesus details this plan to his disciples and to go get these donkeys, uh, and he gives them a secret password if anyone decides to stop them, and it will all be okay. And so they go. And all of this, verse 4, what does it say? This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. And we've seen this over and over again through Matthew. That in Jesus' life, in his actions, in his words, that he fulfills the words of the prophet. And Jesus here fulfills a a prophecy spoken by the prophet Zechariah. 500 days, 500 years, sorry, 500 years before this day occurs. And God promised through this prophet that a donkey and a colt would be available and ready for Jesus on that day. You book an Uber 500 years in advance to be in a specific spot. See how you go. God books the donkey Uber 500 years in advance to be ready for Jesus on this day. And what does the prophecy say? Verse 5. Say to the daughter of Zion, that's Jerusalem, Behold, your king is coming to you. What kind of king is he? What does it say there? Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. After all this time, Jesus steps into the spotlight. If you've been reading and following through this series, time and time again, Jesus tells people not to tell others about him, to keep all his actions and his deeds under wraps. And all of a sudden, at the end of chapter 20, he heals two blind men. And he doesn't say anything to them. He doesn't tell them to keep quiet or to go away. Instead, these two men are following him out and are likely in this crowd. Jesus steps into the spotlight. And in doing this, Jesus is making a massive statement. He deliberately chooses to act in this way, in line with this prophecy, and the expectation, the messianic expectation of God's King and Saviour. And so he's making it extremely clear to the people around him at this point that he is God's promised king and saviour, the Messiah, the Christ. We began our story with the wise men, Magi, who first came to Jerusalem searching for the young Jesus, the king of the Jews, back in Matthew chapter 2. And now Jesus enters Jerusalem, declaring through his actions that he is the king of the Jews the Messiah, the Christ, and he is now here. But even here we get a hint that Jesus isn't going to be the kind of king that people are expecting or wanting. What kind of king will he be? We're told that he will be humble, 
mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. These people expected a warrior, a warrior, a general, a commander of armies. And instead of riding on a donkey, would come in on a chariot or a war horse. It's almost like if Malcolm Turnbull decided to go around in a Toyota Prius instead of his armoured BMW. Jesus comes in on a donkey instead of his chariot or his war horse. Verse 6, So the disciples go as Jesus directed them. They bring the donkey and the colt and they put the cloaks on to make a saddle for Jesus. And the crowd, this great crowd, not just most of the crowd, this large, great crowd doesn't miss a beat. They make a red carpet for Jesus out of their cloaks and branches, spreading them on the road. And verse 9, what do they do? They go before him and they follow him shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. They are singing from Psalm 118, uh, verses 25 and 26. And it's a psalm that is often sung at festivals like the Passover. What does Hosanna mean? Does anyone know what Hosanna actually means? Save us. Save us, God. And originally it is a word of prayer. It is a prayer. God save us. Hosanna. Now it is a word of praise. And in Jesus they see salvation, their salvation from the Romans, from their oppressors. This was their promised king, a son of David, who would deliver them into the golden age, a new golden age. This was their king, their long-awaited king, their promised Messiah who would save them from the Romans. At least that's what they thought. The Jews and people in general are so caught up in their circumstances, their social and political circumstances, that all they expected and wanted from Jesus was their social and political freedom. They're so caught up in their worldly surroundings that all they could imagine, all they could picture was God sending them a king that would establish his kingdom here on earth and a kingdom for the Jews. And in time Jesus will come back and he will establish his kingdom here on earth. But there was something more important that Jesus needed to accomplish at this point. As the people shouted, Hosanna to the son of David, they were oblivious to their need for salvation. Not from the Romans, but from their sins. From their failure to live God's way, their failure to desire and seek after what is good according to God. Now it seems highly appropriate that this is all happening in the lead up to the Passover. A time when the Jews would remember that God freed them from slavery in Egypt and brought them salvation through the blood of a lamb. In the coming week, we're two two weeks away from Easter. In the coming weeks, Jesus will give us something else to remember. He will give us a new Passover when he will go to the cross and he will die. He will free people from slavery to sin and bring salvation through the pouring and shedding of his blood. 
the words Hosanna to the Son of David given fresh meaning over Easter. As we are reminded of our need to call out, save us, Son of David, from our sins. Now don't get me wrong, Jesus is concerned with our earthly, social and political situation. He is concerned about our entire well-being, our physical, emotional, mental and spiritual. But it is this spiritual well-being that first and foremost he is most concerned about. Because it is this spiritual problem of sin that causes all the problems. It is this spiritual state of sin, our failure to live God's way, our failure to decide and choose what is good according to God. It is this that is at the heart of all our other problems. The breakdown in our physical, emotional, mental, social and political areas of life. Do you see Jesus for who he truly is? Verse 10. After all this, this 3K journey is complete. Jesus enters Jerusalem. Behind him is all this noise and commotion and it causes the whole city of Jerusalem to be stirred up. They want to know what's going on. Who or what is this fuss all about? As we mentioned before, as the Magi, the wise men, come to Jerusalem looking for the young Jesus, they cause a stir. And as Jesus enters... Jerusalem this time. He calls the stir and people ask, who is this? Jesus wasn't really a big deal in Jerusalem, aside from the authorities and leaders who clash with him in the coming weeks. uh, Jesus was just a country bumpkin. He was just a guy from out the sticks. He was a guy from Nazareth, from Galilee. Why would anyone from the stick be such a big deal? Why would anyone care? Who knew Shannon Noll before Australian Idol? Susan Boyle before Britain's Got Talent? Nobody knew who they were. They were on the sticks. Do you even know who they were? I don't know. Why did Jesus matter? Why is this guy from Nazareth, from Galilee, matter? We live in a world that thinks Christians are weird. We make such a big deal about Jesus and the world looks at us and says, Who is this? Who is this Jesus? Why should we care? There are times we fail to give them an an adequate answer, but on the other hand, To them, Jesus is just some antiquated, old-dated figure of history. What significance could he possibly have? A guy from the first century, Jewish guy in the Middle East, what significance does he have in 21st, modern, progressive, liberal, advanced, scientific, rational, logical, modern Australia? What significance could Jesus possibly have? Sure, he taught good things. Good things to do, good things to live by. Why would you give your life to follow him though? Why make such a big deal out of him? 
Why do we make such a big deal out of him? What's so special about Jesus? As we lead up to Easter, we are reminded here that Jesus bears our burdens. He is the Prince of Peace. And he is the Passover Lamb. Jesus enters Jerusalem riding on a donkey, a humble animal, a beast of burden, it is called. The mark of Jesus was his humility. He wasn't proud. And we saw a few weeks ago that Jesus bears our grief and sorrows and above all, he bears our sins. And we are reminded again that Jesus, like a donkey, will bear our burdens. And he will take it to the cross. What does it look like for us to place our burdens on Jesus? What does that actually look like? I think the first thing is we actually need to recognise that Jesus is willing to take our burdens. Whether it is an issue of pride, whether it is an issue of fear, whether it is an issue of shame, to bring our burdens to Jesus. You know what Jesus says? He says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Whatever holds you back from bringing your burdens to Jesus, Jesus says, come. There's no reason for you to be ashamed. There's no reason for you to be scared. There's no reason for you to hold on to your pride. Come to me and lay your burdens on me. Put them on me. And let me carry them. How do we do that practically though? Uh, Let me offer two things. Uh, Firstly, bring it to God. First and foremost, bring it to God. Bring it to him in prayer. Lay it before him. Don't try and mumble some kind of formula. Don't try and make it sound nice. Just do it. Just spill it out. God doesn't care about what you say or how you say it. He just wants you to bring it to him. Psalm 55.22 says, Cast your burden on the Lord and he will sustain you. He will never permit the righteous to be moved. God wants you to pour out your heart, your spirit and your mind to him. Don't hold back. God's not some tiny, insy little guy that sits in a box. He's the God of the universe and nothing you throw at him is going to be too much. He will carry your burden. Let me offer you a second one. If that's too hard, if that's too hard, bring it to God's people. Bring it to church. Bring it here. Bring it to us. Paul writes to the Galatians, bear one another's burdens so to fulfill the law of Christ. The reason the church exists, the reason that the body of Christ exists is to be like Jesus. And where Jesus carries the burdens of 
his people, so the church carries the burdens of one another. At a local level, here we carry one another's burdens. We share with each other. And I trust that we will grow in this. We share one another's burdens so we can support each other. But at a global level, the church supports one another as well. And it's critical then that we know what's going on in the world, that we can support our Christian brothers and sisters through the world. That's why we pray for them. That's why we are kept updated with news of what is going on in the church. Because the church exists to carry one another's burdens. And likewise, we are just in much of their prayer and support in our times of need. And so if you struggle to bring it to God on your own, Ask for help. That's why we're here. The offer of prayer is not a token gesture. This is the lifeblood of the church. The prayer is what beats in the heart of the church. To bear one another's burdens together. Because I don't know about you, but I don't always have it together and I can't do it alone. Nobody who's honest with themselves knows that they can't do it alone. Together as the body of Christ we can bring our burdens to Jesus and we bear one another's burdens as he takes them to the cross. The donkey wasn't just a humble animal. It was also a symbol of peace. In times of war, a king would enter a city at the head of his army on his chariot or his war horse. But in times of peace, that would be out of place. Instead, he might choose to come in on a donkey, reminding the people that he and his country and his kingdom were at peace. By choosing to ride a donkey, Jesus makes this statement that his mission is one of peace. His mission is a mission of peace. Flip over to Zechariah really quickly, if you will. Zechariah chapter 9, second last book of the Old Testament. This is where our prophecy comes from, but I want to look at verse 10. Chapter 9, verse 10. Let me read it. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem and the battle bow shall be cut off and he, the king that God sends, he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. The irony of human peace, the human endeavour for peace, the irony of it all is that it often comes at the cost, at the sacrifice of others. Human endeavours for peace have often come at the cost of others. But 
true peace, Jesus' peace, the peace that Jesus offers is achieved not through the sacrifice of others, but the sacrifice of self. It is achieved through the humble, other-centred, other-focused sacrifice of oneself for the sake of another person. And the implications for those who call ourselves Christians is no small deal. It begins with humility, not selfish ambition or pride. This humility is is other-centred, not self-centred. A focus on other people, not ourselves. It thinks of others as better than yourself. Not necessarily thinking less of yourself, but thinking of others better than yourself. It takes into account their interests, their dreams, their passions, not only being caught up in your own interests, dreams and passions. And this is exactly what Jesus does. As we look forward to Easter, we are reminded that Jesus, the Son of God, the Christ, comes down to earth giving up his divine privilege. He doesn't give up his divine identity. He gives up his divine privilege and in humility takes on human form. Paul says he takes on the nature of a slave, a servant. And his whole earthly mission, his whole earthly mission, a mission of peace, is geared towards others, serving God and the people around him, not himself. And his mission would take him to the cross to die for the salvation of others. He will sacrifice himself. And this is our model for peace. This is our example of peace. It is built on humility and sacrifice. Other-centeredness, not self-centeredness. And so practically, the Christian life is directed towards the service of others, not ourselves. Our daily activities, our studies, our work, our relationships between parents, children, friends, colleagues, even strangers, our deeds, our thoughts and our words are all intended and geared towards others and serving them. The concept is simple. We talk about it, we hear about it all the time. But the practice is not. It requires the sacrifice of self. And it can only be done, you can only sacrifice yourself when you truly recognise what Jesus has done for you on the cross. Until you are absolutely sure and assured of your identity in Christ because he has died for you, there is no self-sacrifice. It is a daily battle of the heart, of the mind, of the spirit to say, how can I serve others better today? How can I bring peace into my world today? It is a daily battle. Ultimately, we bring peace into this world by pointing it to Jesus. The sacrificial Passover lamb who frees people from slavery to sin and brings salvation through the pouring out of his blood.
The Passover was a time when the Jews would remember when God freed the Israelites from slavery in Egypt and brought salvation through the blood of the Lamb. If you want to read the story, you can read it in Exodus 12. But let me quickly summarise it. God sends Moses to Egypt to free the Israelites from slavery. They've been in slavery for 400 years and God sends Moses to free them. Moses tries to negotiate with Pharaoh, but that's not going to work, so they start sending plagues. They send ten plagues in all. And after the first nine, Pharaoh refuses time and time again, leaving God with one final plague, the death of the firstborn son, human and animal, in all of Egypt. And so the Israelites were then told, on this night, sacrifice a lamb, the Passover lamb, and painted blood on the door, on the door frame. So that when God's judgment comes over Egypt, that his judgment would pass over you because of the blood of the lamb. They would then eat that lamb as they prepared for a mass exodus, a mass exit from Egypt. As we approach Easter, we remember, we're reminded of a new Passover and the Passover lamb, Jesus. Just as God sent Moses into Egypt, God now sends Jesus into the world to save people from slavery to sin. Just as the Israelites sacrificed the lamb and used its blood to protect themselves from God's judgment, Jesus will sacrifice himself and shed his blood so that people who trust in him will be covered and protected by his blood when God's judgment comes. Jesus, the Passover lamb, humbly carries our burden of sin to the cross and offers us true peace through his sacrifice. The Passover was a reminder of God's mercy, not just his grace, but God's mercy, his unmerited favour. In Jesus, the Passover lamb, we are reminded of God's mercy that we deserve death. Paul writes in Romans, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And yet God, who is fair and just, puts Jesus to death in order to make us right with him when we trust in Jesus. Some people think that World War III will be the end of the world. If it happens, it will be the end of the world. Is that, what's, is that what it's going to take to achieve true peace? To achieve world peace when there's nothing left, no one left to walk this earth? Is that when we achieve true peace? Or is there another way? Jesus enters Jerusalem on a donkey, a beast of burden. And Jesus carries all our burdens, above all our sin, to the cross. Like the donkey, he is a symbol of peace. 
He is the Prince of Peace. But he is also the Passover Lamb. The Lamb that will be led to the slaughter, to the cross, shedding his blood so that the judgment of God might pass over those who trust in him. So I'm going to ask you three questions today. What burdens do you need to bring to Jesus? Two, how does the world seek to find peace? What are people doing to find peace? Does it work? But more importantly, does it last? Thirdly, where can you bring the true peace of Jesus into your world this week? What might you need to sacrifice to achieve it? And what role does the church play in that? Jesus is the burdened Prince of Peace who comes to humbly carry our burdens in order to bring true peace, not by his power, but by his sacrifice. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Come, Lord Jesus, we come to you, the Prince of Peace. And we ask that whatever burdens are here today, that we would lay them on you. Take away whatever fear, whatever shame, whatever pride or guilt we might feel and help us to bring them place them on you. Help us to be people of peace who bring peace into your world. And help us to remember that it is through Jesus, the Passover lamb, that we are freed from sin we are shown mercy by the blood of the Lamb. So be with us as we go. Remind us of these things, Holy Spirit. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.